For someone who is not a Mormon, what matters most about Joseph Smith is how American both the man and his religion have proved to be. So self-created was he that he transcends Emerson and Whitman in my imaginative response and takes his place with the great figures of our fiction, since at moments he appears far larger than life in the mode of a Shakespearean character, so rich and varied a personality, so vital a spark of divinity, is almost beyond the limits of the human, as normally we construe those limits. To one who does not believe in him, but who has studied him intensely, Smith becomes almost a mythology in himself. Harold Bloom, The American Religion. And welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi to talk about the life of Joseph Smith, the founder of the Latter day Saint movement. Zelwyn, how are you? I'm doing well, Willie. I am enjoying some somewhat mild weather today. Again, it's just kind of been a mild winter so far. I'll admit I'm kind of looking forward to getting into this subject, although maybe not with the, the same enthusiasm as you. <laughs> well, it's kind of funny. I was looking, f- you know, we're doing this these readings at the beginning of the episodes, and usually I can sort of play off things when we're doing the Bible or, you know, some great Lutheran history in America or something like that. Then I come to Joseph Smith, and I'm like, nothing I can say here is going to be construed correctly. So I need to <laughs> need to just be careful there. So let's just go right into it. We got our first major snow of the season, so that was that was you know nice out in the country. Things get a little dicey, you know, kind of last on the snowplow routes, but you know everybody's good wintering, so so not too bad. <laughs> so why do this Joseph Smith episode? Some of you might be wondering, Zolan, why are we doing it? Why are we talking about this guy? We have talked quite extensively about the Second Great Awakening in a previous episode, and we're kind of building up, as as Willie said in our first episode of this season, kind of a tapestry about that time period. And if you're really going to deal with the Second Great Awakening, you really cannot get away from dealing with Mormonism. Right. And Mormonism continues to be a tremendous influence in the American scene. And it is something that even the average layman is going to have to deal with from time to time. Right. With this study, you know, we're we're taking these deeper dives into history this season. We saw it a little bit with the Tennessee Synod, and we're going to see it in in other episodes as we look at specific documents in the Tennessee Synod, for example. Or, you know, in the future, we're going to tackle pietism. You're going to get some deep Egyptian history, you know, some Hotep posting. So it's going to be, that's what we're going to do here. It might be too detailed for some of you. It might not be enough information for others. What we are going to try to avoid, though, is, you know, sensationalism, inaccuracies when we can. It's impossible to do history and not be biased. There's no such thing as truly unbiased history. That said, I think we can try to be fair when we need to be and use the best sources that we have. Um, When we're dealing with something like Joseph Smith, we do, for all intents and purposes, have access to the sources, and certainly more than today than we had in decades past. So we need to be fair there. So there are some sources for Mormonism that I would suggest you avoid, and I'll mention those as we get there. Uh, Sadly, some of these sources continue to be among the most popular, but this isn't our only Mormonism episode. We're focusing just on the history of the life of Joseph Smith this episode. 
Then we're going to look at later historical developments and then dedicate an episode, at least one episode to actual Mormon doctrine, which has changed over time. It has developed sometimes, I think, actually contradicts itself. And so if we build on this bedrock from Joseph Smith, say, to Brigham Young and others, you know, you, we'll trace that development and, and have a better apologetic, and if not that, at least a better understanding of the movement. And it really comes down to, if you're going to be dealing with people and dealing with that apologetic task, it does nobody any good to come up and try to tell them, okay, I know what it is that you believe and I'm going to tell it to you. <laughs> right, right. It really is the best course of action to try to seriously understand where someone is coming from so that then you can then speak truth to that situation. And Mormons do come out of a very colorful and a very, frankly, interesting past that we really do need to know something about in order to speak to them and to speak the gospel to them as well. Absolutely. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, the study is, is very interesting in and of itself. And it is so intricately related to the study of American history as well. Right. A movement like the Latter-day Saint movement is able to flourish in a country like the United States in the time period that it does, where it couldn't have in other places at the time. Although, right. admittedly, they do have missionaries in, in Europe and some success elsewhere, but it's it really couldn't have been born anywhere else. Right. Or, frankly, at any other time. Right. So we talked about the Second Great Awakening a little bit, or, or you mentioned it at the beginning, and, and how this is tied. So we think often about the revivals of the Second Great Awakening, the new measures, that kind of thing, getting playing on people's emotions, getting them worked up, these, these mass conversions that often don't lead to long-term spiritual effects. But also tied to the Second Great Awakening is this idea of restorationism. Zellin, you want to try to tackle a definition of restorationism? Oh boy, yeah, that's a that's a, a broad subject. Restorationism, I think, in its most basic sense, would be an attempt to go completely back over history and to attempt to restore the pristine New Testament church in one way or another. Yeah. So it's it's not like you're reforming things and trying to fix where it gone wrong. It's just saying it's completely wrecked. We need to start over. And, and there tends to be two types. The Christian primitivism way, which seem, which wants to strip everything away and just come down to what they see as this sort of pure, unadulterated, original Christianity. So basically they would see um, liturgy and ceremony as things being tacked on unnecessary, the creeds as being unnecessarily divisive, but just trying to distill it down into something simpler. So that would be the primitivism. The other side is this revelatory or prophetic restorationism, which is what you have with Mormonism, wherein God is giving new revelation and new vision. Both camps tend to agree that there is this great apostasy that the church falls away to one degree or another, to where you have someone like Campbell or even, even like a landmark Baptist would say, well, there were still believers sort of all throughout history, but they were very small in number. But if you look at the claims of Joseph Smith, the church had completely fallen away and had to be restored by a new revelation. Right. And so it's a question of degrees, but the general idea is that the church has lost her way or is completely gone and now must be restored. 
that's it's 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 interesting. It's all tied up with millennialism. This idea that the end of days are coming, Christ's kingdom on earth is going to be here. It's going to be a literal kingdom, and we are the ones tasked with bringing in that in that kingdom. It's a it's a theology of optimism, but it ultimately leads in in failure. You're going to see that in all of the restoration movements. World War One really puts the nail in the coffin on sort of an optimistic post-millennialism in American right. Christianity. Right. But nevertheless, you know, that's the climate into which Joseph Smith is born. Joseph Smith is born in 1805, you know, New England area, and, and revival is everywhere. The country, like today, is still very rural, but revival has taken over the place. And we think about these great revivals, but we forget that along with them are hundreds, if not thousands, of smaller little revivals springing up in all these towns. We kind of see the vestiges of that in these ch- these churches that that have a revival season, or, you know, you'll see a church sign like revival June 5th through the 7th from 7 to 8. You know, like, how, how do you, that's some good planning. That's, oh, that's great some, planning, but the yeah, Holy Spirit's coming down then, so let's let's do this. <laughs> right. Well, and I think I think it's also we should note there with uh, the revivalism that was springing up and all these littler ones too. It was kind of creating a climate of distrust because one would come in and they would have a revival and they'd say one thing, and then another charismatic figure would come in and he'd have a revival and he'd say another thing, and so it all just kind of starts to burn out as as we described it in in the other episode. And not only that, but it's. This continual erosion of confidence in the traditional denominational structure. Right. So that the only people who really have great success are the Methodists. Uh, The Presbyterians who have great success are the ones who really reject what would be historic Presbyterianism. The Methodists have some success, you know, revival, and I'm speaking not doctrinally, broadly. (laughs) They have their success because of the Methodist model, and they're able to go out. But really, it's... Uh, kind of an independent movement, especially in the Second Great Awakening. Like you do have the established church in the First Great Awakening pushing against men like Whitfield and everything, but that's really still before disestablishmentarianism. You still have the established churches. Well, now we're post American Revolution. We're way past it. Well, yeah, way past it. That's fair. The idea of, of having an official church and established denominations are really odious to a lot of Americans, and they still are, quite frankly. Well, and and that whole environment of the denominations being odious and also these different revivals coming in and one person saying another thing and another really causes, I mean, if we're coming back to Joseph Smith, causes his parents, Joseph Sr., not that that's ever going to be confusing, <laughs> right. and his mother, Lucy, to become fairly distrustful of the whole thing. And so they, they do tend to, to gravitate towards their own their own visions their own ideas so, so joseph's father is is something of a nonconformist himself right so that gets handed down lucy joseph junior so joseph smith junior is who we that's the prophet that's who we refer to as joseph smith that's joseph smith junior his father is joseph smith senior and his mother is lucy max smith i, I forget you know i got to i, I got to actually lay down those terms here <laughs> So Joseph Sr., then you have Lucy, who really is, for a time, interested in Orthodox Christianity or established Christianity, but never seems to make it work. When they're in New York, she feels 
kind of dejected by the Presbyterian church, which is the main church in, in the village there. She attends Methodist camp meetings. She attends revivals there. Joseph Sr. tends to stay away. And the boys, as boys do, tend to go along with their father. And that family dynamic in the Smith household is very interesting. So eventually, you know, they're really, as you say, you know, following their own ways. And folk practices become um, a big part of what they do. They're a pious family, in a sense. They are concerned with spiritual matters, but they're never really convinced of one denomination or another. Right. So they are they are independent, and, and that really kind of develops in, in the family there. Well, and that, that folk practice that you referred to there, I think, is also kind of informative for us in understanding Joseph Smith. Folk practices being, of course, things that we might consider strange. Strange. This is something, okay, so we're jumping the gun a little bit, but <laughs> when people talk about the translation of the Book of Mormon, they we know either through basic religious education or through that one episode of South Park that <laughs> that Joseph used a seer stone or the, the Urim and Thummim to translate the Book of Mormon. That's how the story goes. Right. So the seer stone, you know, what is a seer stone? Well, it's basically a rock that you look into that would show you where hidden things were. And we see that and we go, okay, so he's some sort of witch. So he's practicing magic. And for years, you know, we wrote about how the family were, the Smith family were involved in all kinds of these devious activities where they would take the stone and try to find treasure. And it was just this really nefarious scheme they came up with. But what we forget is, and especially in the last 20 or 30 years, there's just been a a wealth of historical information. And that really puts them in context is their belief in seer stones, folk magic is not uncommon at all. That's not something right. that would have been unusual to the people of their village. Right. So seer stones, dowsing rods or, or witching rods, all those kinds of things, which we would rightly be uncomfortable with are just the reality of, of rural Christianity in America at that time. And really rural Christianity in Europe, that's what you have. So dowsing rods, for example, they're not necessarily used to conjure spirits or anything. They're used to find where to dig a well, for example. And a seer stone would be the same thing. That's what these men would use seer stones for. Now, did they work? You know, that's always the question. To what degree are these witchcraft? You know, that's what we can't answer in this podcast. But the point is, is that these are not, these are not uncommon in Joseph Smith's day. Or in his family, or which in is his what family. I was getting at. Yeah, in his family, yeah. His family, you know, this is perfectly perfectly normal. Now, what rubs us the wrong way is that he's, at least a few times, Joseph is part of money diggers. You know, he grows up hard. The family's poor. Uh, they don't have much of a reputation. There's a history of Joseph Smith Sr. always having financial issues. So they're always struggling to make payments on loans. They're always, you know, they lose their house at one point. They lose their farm more than one time. So they're moving constantly from from house to house. Joseph Smith, as a young boy, is subject to typhoid, or is it typhus? You know, gets in his leg. He has this traumatic surgery. He's basically an invalid from, say, age 7 to 10. His bond with his parents becomes very strong there. Through these accounts of that, the hard childhood, you're getting this picture of the family as very close, but they've also been through a, a tremendous number of difficulties. Mm-hmm. So they try to make a go at farming, but then on the side, eventually, they have this money digging operation, and Joseph falls in with the money diggers. 
that's never a full-time job that he has. It's never like he said, I want to go be the chief money digger in America or anything like that. It's this practice that he engages in on the side. Eventually, he does get arrested or brought up on charges for being a disorderly person, which money digging could be included in that, you know, what that means. Sure. But he had a reputation that was strong enough that he got more than one person to pay him to try to find treasure on their property, right? <laughs> so, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But this is this this idea of magic and earthly elements to see hidden things is very important to early Mormonism and not something strange to his family. So that right. as we're going to see, so when he so when he's later translating the Book of Mormon using a seer stone, that's why we don't have many accounts of his family blinking or his friends blinking because it's Joe Smith and and he has this gift with seer stones. Wasn't the only person in his village who was alleged to have this gift either. Uh, the sister of one of his associates as well, she had some other kind of glass she looked in and claimed to be able to find stuff. Again, I'm not saying they were able to. You know, that's weird. I mean, it's 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 something that's that's really quite different for us. We had this in, you know, growing up in Appalachia and stories from my grandmother. People use dowsing rods to dig wells and that, that sort of thing. So the folkways live on and, and people do believe in them. Right. You know, and so whatever that means. But putting him in his context, you have this strong religious fervor in America at the time, especially in rural America. You also have a strong rationalism that's growing, but you have the old world folk traditions still apparent there. And that's extremely significant for understanding Joseph Smith and the other supposed prophets of his time. Yeah, and my my point with bringing all that up is not so much to just say, oh, see, we got him kind of a thing, because that's not doing good history. No, no, not at all. Yeah. The point the point in bringing it up is to is to show as as you rightly said, that Joseph does come from an environment in which all of these things kind of shape him. The distrust of or, of the organized denominations, the yep. the practice of folk magic or folk practices, as well as his general poor upbringing, which you might, I would we say that his, his father's trouble with money translates over to the son later in his life as well? Yeah, he's going to have, you know, he, he comes to Kirtland, Ohio, and... You know, in a real estate boom and a banking, you know, the, the market's really up. And he's, in many ways, the victim of failed capitalism, too. <laughs> so, and, we'll, and we might get into that. You know, we're, we're, we're a little behind the eight ball on this episode already. But <laughs> if we get that far into Kirtland, we can talk about that. But yeah, that does follow him. That's kind of funny. That really flies in the face of Joseph Smith did all this to get rich because right. he doesn't. Because he never really does, yeah. <laughs> he never really does, and he never really has it that easy, except for you know certain periods here and there. There's a there's a few years of tranquility, which I think you know that should shade our interpretation. He's he's not a Benny Hinn, you know. He's not a Creflo Dollar or a Joyce Meyer or a I mean it, you know insert any prosperity preacher there. You don't get that. You know his early followers are all very much like him, poorly educated rural farming types from America and Europe. That's who he attracts. He's not a cosmopolitan. Mormons at that time are not cosmopolitan. <laughs> not even the least. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he, he is the product of this environment, and he is able to, track, to attract those people. You know, it's really funny. He's not educated, but he does seem to be able to talk his way into a lot of things and to convince people of a lot of things. So he is very clever. He's very extroverted. He's a big guy for his time. You know, over six feet tall. He's just a character. 
And so it shouldn't surprise us. We can look back at the history, and, and our history is so reductionistic about this. And, and we use so many bad sources because of you know certain evangelical Christian publishers and that we don't get this complete picture. So we go, well, how could anybody follow this obviously false story? And this guy, you know, who walks around with a limp from a childhood surgery, you know, how could, how could this guy be impressive? And he's impressive enough to get thousands of followers in a very short time. And right. how is he able to do that? Well, I guess we'll talk about that, you know, in segment two. I think a big part of it is he's able to communicate in the language of his people. He's able to give them a narrative and he's able to present that narrative in a very compelling way. And we can, we can't discount that if salesman or not, you can't discount it. You know, I would, I would say what is, what is there for us to learn there, but that's probably not a good question. <laughs> we'll, we'll wait on that one. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's the Joseph Smith. That's his immediate environment, rough life, Rural America, you know, from Vermont, New Hampshire, up to New York, which is what we're going to see next. You know, he's, he's in New York for a long time, then Pennsylvania, Ohio. So we'll take a quick break. And then on the other side, we'll talk visions of God, visions in America in general at the time, and uh, the Book of Mormon. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. We are back. You are listening to Word Fitly, Willie Grills and Zelwyn Heidi talking the life of Joseph Smith. So that first segment was fun, Zelwyn. It was. I mean, we covered not a whole lot of ground, but we covered it in great depth, which I think is always fun. So yeah, we got about, you know, 12 percent of what I wanted to, but that's all right. It's a deep, <laughs> you know, when you study this, this part of history and especially something as content, a character as contentious as Joseph, there's just so many different avenues you can go down and we just don't have the time, you know, in one hour to cover it. Right. So now we're going to talk about though, something significant and that is Joseph as a visionary. And what I mean by that is not like Steve jobs, like throwing like his old cell phone down and saying, <laughs> Hey, put all my songs on it, but actually God giving visions to people. Right. Now this was not uncommon. There are newspaper accounts of people receiving visions in the village that Smith lives in. God and Jesus Christ, as it's sometimes put, and, and I'm going to use the terms that they use, even though they're really weird to us, and then that's intentional. They'll say things like, God and Jesus Christ came to me. And then you're like, okay, so was it just like, was it just Jesus or, or you know, <laughs> so, so it sounds, it hits our ear wrong, but they'll say things like that and revealed something to them. Obviously it's met with skepticism 
by a lot right. of people. But remember, Joseph was living in a time where, you know, Ann Lee's shakers are right. great in number. Christian science, Seventh-day Adventists are all blossoming. I think well, the my, sci- scientists might have been a little, little bit later, but people are all, not all, but many people are claiming visions and founding new movements based upon these visions. My, my personal favorite ones, although I can't remember all the details, are the ones who actually come in and claim to be God or yes. claim to be the Holy Spirit. So, yeah. I mean... Those those are the most entertaining, just for the historical novelty. Yeah, the of one it. guy and the one guy wearing a bear skin who just went from town to town. <laughs> you just you can't make this stuff up. I mean, yeah, it's just. I mean, I mean, you would get that a lot. Yeah, I I am Jesus Christ reincarnated. I am God. Even Joseph never never quite does that. Now, as they develop the doctrine of divination, they can say, "Well, we can be gods one day," but right. that's a little different from saying, "No, I actually am God right now." Well, you live in a shanty in Vermont. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm never going to die. Oh, okay, let's let's see <laughs> exactly. approve that one. And I guess that's fine because then you know by the time people prove you wrong, you're dead. So <laughs> not good for you after that. But but anyway, yeah. So so Joseph has his primary vision, and we're, we need to talk about it in some detail in Palmyra, right? In the year 1820. In 1820, yes, Joseph goes into the woods to pray and to ask which church is correct. As he puts it, God the Father and Jesus Christ appear to him and tell him that all the churches are wrong, that all of their creeds are abominations, and Joseph is instructed not to join any church. The vision is interesting because we have several different accounts of it, and it all comes much further after, after the vision. Right. Yeah, so Joseph basically begins to really emphasize this vision after he's pretty well established as as the prophet and is kind of reflecting back on his life and because he doesn't really tell anybody about it up to that point. And so did it happen the way it, that he said that it happened? Did it actually happen some other way? Obviously, we, we would question whether it happened at all. Yeah, and, and you know, the datings, because I think it's 1832 before we get that first vision, right? Is it that late? I mean, the first recording. Uh, something like that, yeah. Even Joseph's like, well, it was in the early 1820s. Then he narrows it down to 1820. The initial account is that this was his regeneration, that, that his sins are forgiven directly, so he's he's good. So those early things, and there's discussions with his family in the 1820s about it, and it kind of you know sparks a little bit in the family. But the initial emphasis of the vision is that his sins are forgiven. The later accounts emphasize the apostasy of the churches of the world. So, and that's important to understand this development because initially it's just how, here's the, tell me if this sounds familiar, how can I find relief for my conscience? (laughs) I don't know if I've ever heard that story before, Willie. So it starts with that. And this I'm inclined to believe, you know, he does seem to, to be plagued as a boy by conscience, if you believe his mother and if you believe other people. He is portrayed as relatively pious. You know, nobody really seems to throw the money-digging shade at him until he claims to be a prophet. You know, he's not a drunkard. He cusses sometimes. That's what one of the the men who hired him to work on his farm, he said occasionally he would say a swear word, you know, paraphrasing. But, (laughs) you know, he's not religious, but he's 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 spiritual, huh? Uh, (laughs) So, yeah, all right. But but he's he's inquisitive. So 
So he may well have had a burden of the conscience. Now, I'm not saying that this vision's legitimate. I'm saying that that might have been true, and that might explain what he's going after at first. How right. can I know my sins are forgiven? It eventually turns into, how can I know which church is true? Well, the answer right. is none of them, and then this one is the true one, this new right. one that I've restored. And now he's going to have more visions and more visitations. But nevertheless, that's the first one. Now, you know, Zellin, what should we make of these differing accounts? Yeah, I mean... Because, I mean, we have Smith's account, 1832, 1835, 1838. I mean, there's three or four different Smith accounts. There's Cowdery's, there's the Wentworth letter. So there are all these different versions, and we're trying to piece it together. And you're going to have that difficulty in any kind of historiography. Right. I think it's fair, like you said, to say that something happened. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't go so far as to say as the actual vision or that God said, you know, don't join any church. But Joseph obviously had some sort of experience that caused him to take this direction. Yeah. Now, it's at this point, something that pops up in a lot of anti-Mormon books. They'll say, well, he was mentally deranged or epileptic, and so he was having epileptic seizures out there. That's because um, his grandfather was prone to fits. Okay. Okay. Now, his grandfather, though, only had fits after, I think he fell off a horse. He suffers some kind of injury later in life, and that causes him to have fits. So let's put that to rest. So we're faced with a number of things here about Joseph already. Legitimate, confused, or just an outright fraud. Now you see the weakness of using C.S. Lewis's Lord Lunatic or Liar defense, right? Because it's not a defense. Permit me this aside. Everybody uses that as like, that's like checkmate. No, no. Lewis's point there is that Jesus is what he says he is. Okay. And you're not really left with too many other options. Either Jesus is who he says he is or is these other two things, but he presents himself as this. Well, we've turned this into some kind of apologetic, like that is somehow persuasive. But you could say the same thing about anybody who makes these claims. Yeah. He's either the, the authority that he says he is, a total loon, or he's making it all up. Right. Okay, we're left with those options. Is he legitimately deceived? A Brody and some others, Dan Vogel, author Dan Vogel, takes takes that approach that he's a fraudster who comes to believe his own message, which sounds like a cop-out, but I, I think we, we've certainly seen that, that men can convince themselves of a lot of things, of their own powers. Certainly faithful Mormons believe that these visions are legitimate, and that's the foundation of their faith. Right. And then some other people are over there sort of in between, like, well, it's not a vision, but it's not, does he have a dream and he's confused? You know, does he actually think it speaks to him? But this is what's being fed into him by this revivalism, too. There is an account of him relaying, I believe it's the first vision, to a Methodist minister and the Methodist just basically laughing him out of the room. And that's one of the reasons why we think that maybe Joseph waits a few years to share the story publicly sure. because he believed that that it would be accepted and it's not. Again, that's still that's without saying it's true or not true. It's just simply he seemed to think that whether he's lying or whether it's a legitimate vision, that it was going to be received better than it was. And that's maybe that's a good point to point out here too. I think very quickly when we come to an issue of apologetics, we're very quick to jump to the, the lunacy kind of thing, we're very quick to pass the judgment upon what happened and say, oh, he's just a complete huckster, the whole thing is false, nothing happened, so on and so forth. But if we're going to deal with what is happening in history, 
we have to deal with Joseph as he is developing. And that means we have to kind of reserve our judgment for a time. Not that that means that we agree with him or that we think that what is happening is in fact real, but that's just good historiography. Right, right. And we do have a lot of you know, we don't have eyewitness accounts of the visions, but we have eyewitness accounts of a lot of stuff that happened. And that's the tricky part, right? Right. I, I, eyewitnesses in court are oftentimes unreliable, yet nevertheless, it seems that Jehovah is satisfied with them because by the mouth of two or three witnesses, right? Right. And so then, okay, now we've got to say, okay, well, how reliable are these witnesses? What do we do here? And that becomes even more interesting, but we'll get into that uh, when it comes to this second vision. Right. So the second vision... Joseph Smith is visited by the angel Moroni. Moroni flies in, visits Joseph in his room, and tells him about these golden plates that are hidden, buried out in the in the in the forest or you know, in the hill Camorra. Yeah, I think it's the hill Camorra where they're buried. Right. So he's told where to go and dig to find these plates. And when Moroni is talking, and, and this happens a, a few times, he always says things three times. It's like he's really trying to get Joseph to get the point find that an interesting little detail, and that's fairly consistent throughout the account. So Moroni comes to him, and Joseph goes and digs up uh, digs up the plates. Okay, this is as the account goes. He tries to take the plates and can't, and is told that he would not be able to until basically he's he's worthy. It's, 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 it's intimated that Joseph's, at this point, his intentions are not entirely pure, so he is not able to take the plates until a few years later. But he goes and he tells his family about the plates we know, and so the whole family is really overwhelmed by this in a positive way, and the family is really strong, and his older brother Alvin is is really the guy who is behind the the discovery of these plates. He's, he's very much, or I mean, enthusiastically supporting it, the right. claim. Right. Now, now, Alvin has really taken on the fatherly role in the house because Joseph Sr. has gotten older, and it's really kind of a sad story, and you you see this in his own accounts, that he's just not able to be a man and be a provider. That's very hard on them. But the family kind of is rallied by Alvin, and then Alvin dies. And the enthusiasm about the plates goes away. Alvin dies, you know, he gets sick, and they try to balance his bile or whatever they're trying to do, and they basically make him swallow mercury, which is lodged in his stomach. And it, it's not a good Yikes. death. Yeah. And Alvin's married, you know, he's in everything and he's got a family. So it's really, it's a, it's a really hard blow to the family when Alvin dies. Joseph is still young at that point. He's had the two visions, but that really puts a damper on things for a while. And then Joseph starts to be sort of the patriarch now, even though Joseph senior is still alive, but eventually Joseph is able to get the plates and there with the plates, he finds a breastplate and these these two stones mounted like spectacles, the Urim and Thummim, which are translation tools. And so then he goes about translating it after he marries his wife, Emma, and they go to Pennsylvania. And now I said right. Pennsylvania. I feel like we should get Adam in here to comment on it. <laughs> so, yeah, and I've really gone. I mean, I went through that really, really quickly. Um, right. So they get the plates, they get to Pennsylvania, and he, he's going to go about translating the book. And so how does he do that? He he puts one of the, he put he uses the Urim and Thummim, or the seer stone. He places them in a hat, puts his face in the hat to block out light, which is the same thing that he did to find treasure, or to find lost items, and then sees through it. So the plates are sitting 
sort of on the table, but he's looking at the stones in the hat. That's what's going on. Just maybe so that for listeners who might be kind of unfamiliar with all of this, what are these plates supposed to be? The plates are, this is what is going to be translated as the Book of Mormon. Okay. Okay. So this is what they call a New Testament of Jesus Christ. Uh, The Book of Mormon is really the story of ancient Hebrews. It's kind of its own Old Testament and New Testament. The story of ancient Hebrews coming to America, warring tribes, rising and falling. Okay, so that that happens. And then Jesus, after his resurrection, visits America and preaches to those people in that book. Okay. That's the Book of Mormon. So it's basically Old Testament in America and then New Testament in America. And so the the purpose of the gold plates then was that this account was written down long ago. Uh, Who was purported to be the original author? Well, there's there's multiple authors. I mean, there's multiple authors. Okay. The Book of Mormon, it's basically Mormon sitting down. And writing the letters, but then it's it's multiple books like our Bible. Okay. So it's spanning, say, in theory, twenty two hundred BC to like four hundred AD. Okay. Okay. I just I'm just trying to get that clarified for, like I said, for listeners who might not be familiar with the Book of Mormon. Yeah. 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 And so so he takes these seer stones and he puts his face in the hat. And what does he see in the hat? He sees the words appear, and then he dictates them to a scribe who writes it down. Uh, He had a few different scribes, Martin Harris, I believe his wife Emma actually helped some too, and probably most significantly Oliver Cowdery. And and it was also frequently done behind a curtain, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, yeah, behind a curtain in another room, you know, they basically, he alone with his scribe. Yeah, so that he would be kind of alone and that there would be this translation work going on. How long did it take him to do that? He translates in roughly two years, so 1827 to 1829, and then printed in 1830, I believe. But now, of course, we have to ask the question, I think that may be pressing for a lot of people dealing with the apologetics issue again. Where did it come from? Well, I told you, it's the ancient record of... No, <laughs> you know, beginning with Nef- the book of Nephi, first Nephi, and ending with, with Moroni. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing we, you know, and that is what the interesting thing is about it. You know, it's this collection of books, but yeah, is it legitimate? Is it a legitimate translation? Is it a forgery or is it plagiarism? Especially since it was claimed to have been written in what uh, Joseph Re- reformed, reformed Egyptian, Egyptian, yeah, reformed Egyptian, which doesn't exist. Which doesn't exist, but it's also interesting because he's writing it at a time, I think, either right before or right at the time where uh, Champion. Uh, first deciphers the actual Egyptian hieroglyphics. So you can kind of get away with it saying. Yeah, yeah, we didn't know. And then actually that's interesting too, once we get into the translation of the book of Abraham later, right. which we probably won't but <laughs> at the pace we're going. But yeah, that's the question. Does he plagiarize it? Because there are a couple of books that they say he could have borrowed from. Brody says that he gets the gist of it from a book called View of the Hebrews, which is written by by a Congregationalist minister I believe in Vermont, who actually lives at the same time in the same village as Oliver Cowdery, who's going to be one of the scribes of the Book of Mormon. Right. Now that's now we're getting into like Alex Jones territory with it, but <laughs> but the basic the same it does have the same basic idea that the Hebrews came to America, right, and, and that the Indians are descended from the the tribes of Israel. Yeah, because you're still kind of coming out of that time period where, you know, not very long after the... I suppose we've only been on this continent for, what, a couple hundred years by this point? 
And people Correct. are still yeah. wrestling with the the problem of, well, where do these people come from? Yeah. And so that's Brody's idea. Obviously, Mormons, Latter-day Saints, rather, would disagree with that. One of the things that always gets brought up, and I want to make this clear, you know, again, things to avoid. So there's this, this it's what's called the uh, Spalding theory, that Joseph stole the story from a novel, an unpublished novel by Mr. Spalding. And we have to go through all these kind of like, really weird coincidences and things to get to that theory, but it's become one of the most popular theories, even though no reputable scholar believes it. Mormon or non-Mormon, no scholar, no great historian of Mormon history takes the Spalding theory seriously, and yet it's trotted out in Walter Martin's book still, Ed Decker, who you should avoid at all costs when it comes to Mormonism apologetics. It's trotted out, and it's very popular. It just won't die, even though it's totally been discredited. Sure. And it basically, I mean, it's just this big idea where somebody would have had to get this book manuscript to Joseph in secret over a number of years. And the, and it's actually called the Spalding-Rigdon theory because they say that Sidney Rigdon, one of Joseph's most prominent early followers, gets the manuscript to him, which is amazing because he would have to get it to him two years before they met and before Rigdon <laughs> even converted. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Well, don't let historical details get in the way of a good theory. <laughs> right. And they go, well, you know, but see, we found this Spalding manuscript, and he lived in the same town as Sidney Rigdon, and he, he, he frequented the print shop where Rigdon worked, so Rigdon totally stole the manuscript from there. Well, it's like, yeah, that's fine, but you what you don't realize is they found this all this stuff out after they went to do research on anti-Mormon books in the 1860s. So this is all coming out much later, and it's all just too perfect. I mean, the timeline doesn't add up. So they go, well, this mysterious stranger was coming in and giving Joseph Smith the materials, and that mysterious stranger was Sidney Rigdon. Once again, how's he traveling from Pennsylvania all the way up to this part of New York? As a pastor this entire time, well before his conversion and faking it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't add up, and that's why nobody really takes it seriously. The most prominent anti-Mormon authors out there, the, the reputable ones, the respectable ones, do not take it seriously. Right. So we need to stop taking it seriously and avoid that. So we're left with this then. What was it? I don't, well, I don't know. Zelman, do, do we want our personal opinions there or not? Well, I mean, I think if, if we're going to be honest with it, obviously Joseph produced it. I mean, there's there's obviously no way around that. Whether you believe he translated it or whether you believe that he just made it up, he produced it. Yeah. I think that's the most neutral position you can take. Sure. I, I don't believe that he plagiarized. I'm not convinced. I mean, maybe in view of the Hebrews, maybe that framework. And then there's another poetry book where the similarities are like, oh, okay, that's a little odd. But again, you know, there's a lot of things with Joseph, like you have to rely too much on coincidence. Like they'll say, well, he was a, he was influenced by Swedenborgianism. Well, how would that, how would even, okay. how would that even happen? You know? <laughs> and that, that's not related to the Book of Mormon. It's just like too much stuff would have to line up. Yeah, I, I don't believe that it's plagiarized, at least not for the most part. I don't believe that he had help from Oliver Cowdery or certainly not Signe Rigdon and certainly not Martin Harris. I believe it's it's his, his product. They go, the Mormons will say, well, see, it has all these different voices in it. So therefore, it's proof that that he translated it miraculously. Uh, you know, you could say the same thing about Faulkner or any or any author. They'll right. also say something like Joseph Smith was uneducated, so he couldn't have possibly 
came up with this on his own. Well, I mean, why are we always like giving rural people, you know, just this, it's like the heresy <laughs> of low expectations. Like he's rural. He doesn't have formal education. He's not stupid. He's not right. slow. And I don't know what his vocabulary was like. Was it limited? I mean, obviously not, you know, if he, if we believe he wrote the book. So, you know, you, you have this, but everything to me points to it being not plagiarized, but actually a product of him. And, 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 and quite frankly, a very ambitious project and impressive. I mean, elephants and steel and stuff aside in the, in that <laughs> he, he's able to make this kind of epic, which is a little bit impressive. You know, you have differences in the Book of Mormon between the printer's manuscript and some later later editions, but that's, of course, going to happen. He's speaking to scribes, so we do have some evidence where he went back and corrected what the scribes wrote down. You know, I don't I don't know that, that someone else wrote it. What you do have, for example, though, is he lets Martin Harris take 116 pages of the translation, and they get lost, and he's not able to reproduce those pages. Right. And so he says, well, now God is punishing us because these are going to fall into the wrong hands. So we do, so God gives him like a summary of the book that he wrote, that he had originally translated. You know, you get, okay, then, then now we're starting to see some red flags here, right? Right, right. You know, who, who saw the plates? That's interesting. Uh, I do think it's telling. So you have two sets of witnesses, and we're going way over time, but whatever. You have two sets of witnesses, what we call the three witnesses and the eight witnesses. Even though they all, you know, most of them really fall away from Mormonism, none of them ever deny their testimony of seeing the plates. Now, the plates are described as these golden, they're not, they, it never actually says they're gold, but these golden appearance plates on a sort of a three ring binder kind of thing, these three metal rings, and then part of the plates are sealed. It's unclear whether the first three witnesses actually see a physical book or if it's just a vision, but the, the other eight witnesses. Now, they all belong to the Smith family or one other family. You know, that's kind of important. They never recant their testimony. Brody says things like, well, Joseph filled his frock coat with a bag of sand and convinced people that it was the book and the plates. I'm like, I, I don't know. Uh, we, <laughs> you know. I don't know if I buy that. They, they, I think there was certainly some sort of physical metallic book, whether it was a forgery or not. Conveniently, it's not here. According to right. Joseph, it was taken back up into heaven. <laughs> and so we don't have it. And so all those things really give me pause. I mean, obviously, they would. Yeah, and, and maybe <laughs> and maybe just for our listeners' sake, just so that there's no confusion here, too, just because we're wondering about, you know, did this happen? Was it real? Was it a forgery? That doesn't mean that we're, like, giving a glowing endorsement of it or something like that. Yeah, all, all I'm saying is is that it, Joseph Smith, it's, the Book of Mormon is a project of Joseph Smith, and, and there was probably a physical metallic book. Right. That doesn't mean that it was right. It just means that there probably was something. And let's say that Moroni, an angel named Moroni, came to him, gave him actual gold plates, and everything he translated from it was accurate as far as what the plates said. That still wouldn't make it true. Right. Because if I or an angel from heaven come with another gospel, right? Right. So all this, all these visions and signs could have, in theory, happened, but they could have been a spiritual deception. Right. And, you know, right. I mean, that's kind of strikes our modern ears wrong, but it, it's certainly possible. You know, there are spiritual, there are malevolent entities out there. So, but hey, we, we got to take another break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly.
But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. And we are back talking the life of Joseph Smith. You know, I honestly thought we were going to be able to do this in an hour, but we're actually going to end up doing a second hour, it looks like, on just on Joseph. So that's all right. That's what happens. Um, we don't want to shortchange this. Now, I realize we are both going into great detail, but also brushing over a lot. So if there is anything you're unclear about, go to WordFitly posting or go to the Word the WordFitly Facebook page or the website. And send us questions. You know, I am talking a lot and, you know, I gave Zelwyn a whole reading list for this. So, you know, he's primed. So I might be speaking in terms we don't understand or maybe not providing enough detail or context for you. So if we can make anything clearer here, I'd like to know also in the odd chance that a Latter-day Saint's actually listening, if you think that I've unfairly represented the history, then by all means, you know, contact me or contact the word fitly spoken crew. Because uh, we are seeking to do justice here. I mean, we're, we cannot affirm the veracity of Joseph's claim, but I think we can try to be as objective as possible with history. Biased, yes, uh, but at least fairly objective. Right. So it is what it is. So we have Joseph in his context. We have Joseph. He's married now. He's had both visions. He's been permitted to take the books. He's translated, whatever that means, the Book of Mormon. He borrows money from Martin Harris to get it published. It is published. Then we start to see the church emerge. It is interesting. The Book of Mormon, not a great seller when it first comes out. (laughs) Mark Twain actually reads it at some point and calls it, well, he calls it boring. I forget his actual words, but dry as wallpaper paste or something like that. I I forget what he said. So it is what it is. But we begin to see the church emerging. Now, we might not in this segment get to the burning question of polygamy. You might have to wait till the next episode. But we have to get this groundwork out. So the church is formally organized in the home of Peter Whitmer, 6th of April, 1830. And really, the Mormon doctrine begins to develop. At the same time, Joseph begins his revision of the Bible, which is interesting. The Latter-day Saints still uses the King James, but I believe the RLDS, or now the Community of Christ, uses what we call the Joseph Smith translation, which is something that we forget, that Joseph Smith actually undertook a revision of the Bible. Yeah. And I don't know if you read much on that at all, Zell, because I don't think Brody really goes into it that much. No, I, I not not a whole lot, but it's just kind of remarkable that you'd finish writing the Book of Mormon and then undertake to revise the Bible. I mean, right. Well, as Joseph said, the Book of Mormon is the most perfect book, and the right. Bible, and as Mormons believe, the Bible is correct insofar as it, as it's tra- the Bible is you know right insofar as it's translated correctly. Right, which is frankly convenient, but yeah, very anyway. convenient, right? Yeah. <laughs> You know, quotanous subscription, right? <laughs> to the Bible. To the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the and I don't want to spend too much time on the Joseph Smith translation, but it does seem like he's actually consulting commentaries and such to do it. Adam Clark's, like, Greek, you know, revision and stuff. He really seems to be following that pretty closely 
in a lot of places. So there aren't these big revelatory changes. A lot of it is just Adam Clark Methodist basically just correcting what he saw as deficiencies in the King James. Sure. So British Methodist guy. Anyway. Very early on in his prophetic career, uh, Joseph Smith is giving all kinds of revelations from the Lord, sometimes on what we might consider rather mundane things. Yeah, yeah. Re- yeah, he's he's receiving revelation. And so, you know, the translations are the Book of Mormon and then like Book of Abraham and so on. But then you have these big revelations that are recorded that God, however he does it, gives him these things. So what would be an example of of one of those? Do you remember? Uh, if I can remember right, sometimes he would just, like, if there was a decision to be made in the community, uh, Joseph, especially very early on, would come in and say, basically, thus says the Lord, and then the community would go with that decision, because it was yeah. a revelation. I don't remember anything in specifically, no. Yeah, I mean, you know, the word of wisdom would be one where it's like, don't eat a whole lot of meat, don't drink really hard drinks, and tobacco <laughs> for medicinal use for animals only. You know, Mormonism <laughs> and alcohol is interesting because... They're not teetotalers until the 1900s, really. And even Joseph enjoyed some tobacco every now and then and wine. But yeah, he would receive (laughs) and then people would go with it. And it's really it's it's interesting to see. And so a lot of these revelations are recorded in Doctrine and Covenants, which is another scripture of the Mormons of the Latter-day Saints. You you see the interpretation of them change over time. It's not unlike the, the Romanist would do with canon law or people want to do with the Constitution or something. It's like, you know, because we're in a different context now, we have to change what these (laughs) revelations mean. And, you know, I think certain would-be Bible scholars want to do that with the words of the actual scriptures today. Right. So, you know, it's kind of funny to see that at play in Mormonism too, which claims to have true and living prophets who should be able to come in and correct them. But that's a a discussion for uh, the Mormonism theology episode. At the same time, Joseph you know, must have believed something about the Book of Mormon because he actually goes and sends missionaries out to the Indians to basically preach this message to them, which is kind of amazing to go, here, here's this book I wrote about your people. This is you guys. This is what, yeah, this is your reality. This is your reality. You weren't always red-skinned. You used to be white, but then you were cursed. Yeah, that's that's something I think that we can't really skip over too much. <laughs> and I. It, it's maybe it's going to make Mormons uncomfortable. Maybe it's going to make everybody uncomfortable. But it's just, hey, this is history. We have to deal with it, right? But especially if I remember correctly, the Book of Abraham dealing with the issue of basically where the black race comes from, as well as where the Indian race comes from. Do you want to delve into that, Willie? Well, you know, the Indians, the Lamanites, as they call them, are basically cursed through rebellion. But then you have the blacks who are actually cursed because of Cain. So the blacks are never able to, for the longest time, hold the priesthood, uh, at least not until 1978 in the Mormon church until, until a new revelation, uh, basically because of that. So they, because of the curse of, of Ham or yeah, sorry, curse of Ham, not Cain, the curse of Ham, they're not able to attain really the highest celestial kingdom in Mormon salvation. Right. Indians, you know, basically they're originally white, they're cursed, they're red. But if, they repent, they can become white and delightsome, <laughs> as it said. That's re- th- this is going to be the one that gets taken out of context, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty <laughs> so, much. This is going to be a poll quote in some, you know, some heresy case somewhere. somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tribunal. Um, yeah, so that's basically the idea there. 
you know, racial, you know, curses, which the idea that the curse of ham is, is why the black race is black is something you see in other strains of Christianity too. Right. It wasn't unique to Mormonism at the time. Yeah. And now the Indian thing kind of is, I'm really trying not to make jokes here, Zelma. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, yes. So, but, but they do have a very vigorous mission to the natives at that time. Mm-hmm. Now with limited success, I think, because that would be a bit of a hard pill to swallow for them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like what we were talking about in the beginning, like coming up to somebody and saying, okay, I'm going to tell you everything that you didn't know about yourself. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a hard pill for anybody. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And really, it's right out of the gate. It's not like the Scientologists, right, where they you don't learn the secrets till you get way high up in it. This is just pretty much page one. Yeah, this you. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what's going on here. For Church formally constituted. They're moving from, you get to move from Pennsylvania New York to back to New York. You know, all this shuffling's going on. Joseph receives the revelation for the saints together in Ohio, in Kirtland, Ohio. Now, this is where I really begin to be suspicious, because why would God call you to Ohio to set up paradise? <laughs> now we are going to get letters, Willie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, you end up with that. And like I said, folks, we're painting with a broad brush here, you know, skipping over some some big details. But so they, they get into Kirtland and there's where and he already has a pretty large amount of followers. He's already sent missionaries out at this point. So the saints are beginning. The Latter-day Saints are getting together in Kirtland, Ohio. The numbers are getting very strong there. He claims to receive the revelation to build the temple. It's also at this time, you know, that Sidney Rigdon really comes on the scene. And Sidney Rigdon is really the great early preacher of the Latter-day Saint movement. And so any history of Joseph Smith is not complete without Sidney Rigdon. If I'm not mistaken, it's actually Sidney Rigdon who coins the term Latter-day Saint. I'd have to take your word on it. Rigdon's an early follower of Alexander Campbell, probably the other most famous restorationist at this time. Alexander Campbell's a primitivist. If you if you want to go see his sons, you just need to go to a Disciples of Christ, a Christian church, or a Church of Christ. You know, those are the historic heirs of Alexander Campbell. His church was called the Church of Christ. Also, at this time, Joseph's church is called the Church of Christ. It becomes very confusing. And it's still very confusing. Remember, what Alexander Campbell means by the Church of Christ is that he had restored the true Church of Christ, that, all, that everyone else was an apostate. That's also what Joseph Smith meant. But we want to make that clear. This is not some juicy ecumenism, okay? This is not saying, we're the Church of Christ, we're all open. They're saying, we are the, emphasis on the, true Church of Christ on earth. And so we're taking back the trademark on the original name. <laughs> Even even to the point of Joseph uh, making the claim that they are actually Israel. Um, yeah. Not in, even in a spiritual sense, but they are actually Israel. They, they are true Israel, yeah. And this is significant for Joseph's theology and something that we, since we're talking about Campbell, that would be good. See, Alexander Campbell has a mild dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. He cannot see really any continuation between the Old and New Testaments. He truly sees a different plan of salvation in the Old Testament as in the New. Joseph is different. Joseph sees one continuous plan all throughout the Old and New Testament. So he is not the dispensationalist like Campbell is. 
and and I'm using that term loosely, and you can, you can do that at this time period. Sure. For Campbell, very much clear. There's really nothing for us in the Old Testament as far as application for the Christian. I mean, he's kicked out of the he, he's kicked out of the Presbyterians, and then kicked out of the Baptists for saying that the Ten Commandments do not apply in any way to Christians. Hmm. Yeah. And now we're hmm. back to a third use debate, right? Uh, but, but beyond that, I mean, I don't know that he even believes in the first or second use. But Joseph doesn't see that. He sees that connection. And that's why his building of temples makes a little bit more sense, if you see it that way. Sure. So in Kirtland, Ohio, he's, they're going to build the first Mormon temple. Now, the temple is interesting because temples actually precede meeting houses or churches in the Latter-day Saint movement. So you actually actually have the temple stuff being developed before that. The temple is where a Latter-day Saint will go and perform elaborate rituals in order to achieve, say, eternal sealing in heaven, in order to receive baptism for the dead, which is not instituted at this time. That's, that's later in Nauvoo, Illinois. But it's where they'll go and perform all these rituals to achieve something. It's not unlike... It's, it's meant to be similar to the Old Testament temple where you would go and a priest would perform a sacrifice and you would receive remission of sins. Just maybe just for the sake of clarity. So yeah. what you're saying is, is that the the typical Mormon churches that, you know, the, the average listener might see as they're driving by, those are not temples, right? Those are not temples. A temple is different. There's there's less than 200 temples in the world now, which is a lot more. I want to say 160 something as of right okay. now, but don't quote me on that. Their aim is to get to 200 by a certain year, and they're okay. very aggressive about that. Yeah, a temple is a special place where, as a Latter-day Saint, you are obligated to go and perform these temple ordinances, but it's different from the church. So a church, a Mormon church, or a Mormon you know, meeting house, I forget the correct terminology right now, that is not the temple. And those okay. actually come later. Because for a lot of times, you know, regular Sunday meetings are not a thing, because the group's so spread out, or if they are meeting, they're meeting in houses or meeting in fields. So the temple, now now the building of the Kirtland Temple is significant, and that's something to talk about because when it's built, there are literally hundreds of accounts of seeing angels flying in and out. People see, you know, Moses and God talking to Joseph Smith in the temple. I mean, hundreds of these accounts. And you wonder, like, what kind of mass hallucinations going on here? Or something, yeah. Well, are people, you know, what kind of deception this is or or what kind of apparitions these are. Prior to the founding of the temple, though, I should point out that the apostles come and bestow priesthood authority on Joseph Smith. So what you start to see is this idea that the priesthood is being restored, the Aaronic priesthood, priesthood of Aaron, and then what they call the Melchizedek priesthood. So you have these two priesthood classes restored, which is important, you know, because when you have temple, what do you need? You, know, you, gotta, you need the you know, temple you ritual. Priests. Yeah, you, or you got to have the priests, right? Right. So, yeah, so you have Joseph Smith claiming that he received apostolic authority and priesthood authority from, you know, these heavenly beings. And then you get to the to the building of the Kirtland Temple. People are flocking in to see this temple. It is, you know, in its time, a very beautiful building, actually not owned by the Latter-day Saints today. It's actually owned by one of the, the breakaways, the Community of Christ. And in that temple, you have these rituals performed. It's it's sort of rudimentary in Kirtland. We see it develop more in Nauvoo. So that's happening. They're all coming here. At this time, there's also a big real estate boom in the United States. The market economy is doing well. And so Joseph decides to found a bank in Kirtland. 
Uh, do you have any comments before I start going off on a tangent about <laughs> Joseph again? <laughs> about just well, the whole thing is a tangent about Joseph. So <laughs> right, right. Joseph, he's not a Martin Stefan type character who's who is depicted as sitting in his house while everybody else is out toiling in the fields, you know, to build his house. Joseph is a storekeeper. Joseph is a cashier. Joseph is doing a lot. He actually has a lot of side hustles going on. And that's, that's what you see all throughout his life. In addition to religious stuff, it's just like the money taking. He always had some other job going on to try to make ends meet. And so one of the things that happens in Kirtland is the bank. Well, and and maybe, maybe one of the great reasons for the bank is something that we alluded to earlier in the episode that having so many side hustles as he did, he was always perpetually broke. Yeah, the guy's broke. He's making bad investments. He can he'll open a store and he can't get it to work. You know, is it because he's a starry eyed dreamer? He's too you know what it, you know is he too busy you know writing down these supposed revelations? We don't know. There's no there's no indication that he's lazy by any stretch of the oh, imagination. By, by no means. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like he's too busy, and that's why he <laughs> fails in business enterprise. So huge following. Everybody's putting their money in this bank, and then there's a banking crisis across the United States. Across the United States, it's not it's not like just that one bank, and he absconded with the funds. What happens is, you know, he goes bust because all these banks are going bust. He makes all these prophecies about prosperity coming, not like a Creflo Dollar kind of thing, but he makes these pro- and about all these good things coming, and then this goes bust, and they actually totally turn on him. The members come in, they want to seize the temple, they have guns, they have swords, they're going to take the temple by force, and Joseph is forced to flee. But at that, by that time, he's already sent expeditionary followers out to Missouri to look at forming another colony in Missouri, which is where things are really going to go haywire with the Mormon extermination order. But in Kirtland, Brigham Young is, says that at one point, I don't believe there were more than 10 people who believe in the prophet. That's how dire the situation becomes in Kirtland. And and basically, Kirtland is abandoned. Since we're kind of coming towards the end of this episode anyway, maybe that's a good way of showing that as we're dealing with Mormon history, this is not like a, ha- a hagiography, you know, that there was one triumph from one thing to another. No, Joseph Smith faced a lot of very serious problems throughout his life, his relatively short life, too. Yeah, and as long as we're in Ohio, they ran out of town. They receive mm-hmm. threats wherever they go, and right. uh, this is where lesser Mormon books are going to say, "Well, it was because the Mormons were making thread, and he was like Muhammad." And that was an epithet common, you know, newspapers call him the American Muhammad. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there's. I mean, that, we're going to get into that because Sidney Rigdon plays into that a little bit later about threats, but this all comes later in in Nauvoo. They're ran out from place to place. Smith is actually tarred and feathered at the same time. So this is before the banking crisis. Smith is actually tarred and feathered. You know, it's kind of a quaint punishment, but it's a horrible punishment to have burnt right. molten tar poured on you. So actually, if you look at the, the few portraits we have of him in his time, you'll notice like on his left side, his his hair is kind of combed forward. And that's actually to cover up a scar, a pretty severe scar he got from the tarring and feathering. But yeah, I mean, everywhere you go, he's either persecuted for whatever, thrown out, you know, it's a really sad story as tarring and feathering. If we want to talk about the opposition that he faced and, and the fact that his life wasn't easy. They break into his house at night, you know, basically drag him out. They take his kid and he has an, a very young adopted son at that point, you know, maybe six years old. I don't think it's six months. I think it's six years. They they take Joseph out. He's tarred and feathered, left for dead, nearly does die. The child actually contracts a disease from exposure 
because of that, because they left the child unattended and dies as a result of it. I mean, it's just a tremendous series of misfortunes that he suffers through this. And what that serves to do is he doesn't waver from his message then. That serves to galvanize his followers around him. And so I'm not I'm not making this into a hagiography, you know, and lifting him up, but I'm here saying that his life is a turbulent life and that he was suffering with them to a great degree that endeared him to his followers. And, and so we can't we can't discredit that. And nevertheless, though, after all that, when the Kirtland fiasco happens, he loses almost all of them, but quite quickly builds his base back up again because he, he does have a significant number of followers in Missouri. So we got as far as Ohio. <laughs> you know, so so just a quick recap, you know, what do we Zellan, what do we want the readers to or the the readers, the listeners to take away from this first hour? I think the the most important things to take away from this is Joseph's early life and the struggles that he faced and the kind of person that he was and then also the the nature of of you know what it what it took for him to actually start this movement in in that particular time period especially that was washed over with all kinds of you know similar kind of movements his own personal magnetism and all of that as well as the beginning of his personal struggles which i think as our listeners are going to find out as we go forward are only going to increase yeah this is not something that you know oh this was a little hiccup and now it got better yeah. no it it gets worse stick around you know when we do the second hour because you're go- it's very important to, you know for for american history you're going to see you're going to see a governor of a state put out an extermination order and actually try to carry it out an extermination order against a certain religious group i mean you're going mm-hmm. to see all kinds of stuff the the relationship between militias in cities and states, it's very interesting. And then we're going to get into those great theological differences and, and heresies, divinization, the rejection of the Trinity, you know, what that means, you know, in Mormon theology. Uh, we're going to talk about baptism for the dead, polygamy, you know, all those hot button issues when it comes to the Latter day Saint movement. But for now, we are out of time. This has been a word fitly spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with. Zelwyn Heidi. If you like what you heard, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. Thank you for listening. God love you, and God bless. I have intended my remarks for all both rich and poor, bond and free, great and small. I have no enmity against any man. I love you all. I'm your best friend, and if persons miss their mark, it is their own fault. If I reprove a man and he hates me, he is a fool, for I love all men, especially these brethren and sisters. I rejoice in hearing the testimony of my aged friends. You never knew my heart. No man knows my history. I cannot tell it. I shall never undertake it. If I had not experienced what I have, I should not have believed in myself. I never did harm any man since I have been born into the world. My voice is always for peace. I cannot lie down until all my work is finished. I never think any evil nor do anything to the harm of my fellow man. When I am called at the trump of the archangel and weighed in the balance, you will all know me then. I add no more. God bless you all. Amen. Joseph Smith the King Follett Discourse.